Welcome to Off the Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera, and each episode, I sit down with a member of the water polo community to talk about what helped them become successful in the world of water polo. This week, my guest is Dave Carlson, the head coach at Los Alamitos High School. If you enjoy the episode, please do me a favor, share it with your friends, leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever else you listen to your podcast. Thank you and enjoy the episode. So I'm, I'm here at Los Alamitos High School, sitting down with uh, Coach Dave Carlson. First off, Dave, thanks for being here and thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to start off really generically and really just ask you, what got you started into coaching water polo? I wasn't planning on coaching or teaching. And then I had a really good teacher and coach in Ken Hamdorf over at Golden West. And so, you know, I was fortunate to be a part of two state championship teams as a very small role player, someone who was not a starter, even one of the first guys off the bench, but somebody way down the line. He made a huge impact in my life. And whenever I wrote papers in college, or my teaching credential classes of who my best teacher was, it was Ken Hamdorf. And he had a great supporting cast, Tom Hermstead and Don Mahaffey. And so Ken Hamdorf just changed my life. And I realized after I played for him that, you know, maybe I can do something similar, making an impact on somebody's life. You know, it's funny because I consider one of my greatest influences, if not the greatest influence in terms of my wanting to finish college and wanting to uh, get into coaching was Flip Dar. Flip Dar was at Saddleback at the same time that Hamdorf was at Golden West. And I mean, Flip had dedicated his life to really helping the underdog. I mean, because that's what I considered myself to be was a community college underdog. Like no one gave me a chance. So here I am and I'm going to try to make this happen. But so you went to Golden West, you played there, won a couple state championships. I actually know one of your teammates, Kurt Bowman, uh, went to high school. I was with, roommates with him. Okay. I My went sophomore to, year, we were roommates. I went to high school with Kurt. Um, and so you, you get into coaching and did you get into coaching first or did you become a teacher first? Because you've been a teacher for how long now? So... My first year here at Los Alamitos was uh, the 1999-2000 school year. I knew I wanted to coach, and so my first opportunity came from a guy by the name of Greg Luttrell. He was the head coach over at Edison. Hamdorf gave me his contact information. I call him up and say, you know, I'm interested in playing or coaching, and would you have a role for me? Um, I played for Coach Hamdorf like you did. He said, when can you start? I said, you, <laughs> I said you, you've never met me before. He says, you played for Coach Hamdorf. I said, for two years. I said, I wasn't a starter. I wasn't an All-American. I wasn't even one of the first subs off the bench. I played when we were up by 20 goals, which was a lot. He said, I'll hire you. You know, you have to know what you're doing. And so I went to Edison and was going through Cal State Fullerton and was coaching over there. And then an opportunity arose uh, again through Golden West, uh, Coach Hamdorf at the time, and, uh, and the women's coach at that time was John Wright. And they connected me with Chad Roberts, who was the head coach over at Marina. And he brought me over and allowed me to coach the varsity girls over there. Wow. At and Marina High School. At Marina High School. Okay. And he entrusted me with the varsity girls program over at Marina. Yeah. And that would end up being the CIF Division One championship team. Oh, okay. So you won CIF uh, for Marina. The first, it was actually the first ever official. Officially sanctioned. Oh, okay. CIF. Okay. So I remember Scott Hinman being a really big part in that. And I, so I remember 
we played with the girls in 95, you know, when I was in high school, they were combined with, with the boys. And then I remember Hinman in like 96, 97 started getting girls teams together. Yeah. So, so there was girls water polo 1994, 1995. There was only a few teams that, that, that had a girls team. Edison was one of them. Marina was one of them. And LaSalle was one of them. Bell Gardens. Yeah. Bell Gardens. And the, the, the teams would compete, you know, after the boys, after the JV game. Oh, okay. So, so not everybody fielded a girls team. And then um, they had the unofficial CIF championship uh, was the SoCal championships, the Scott Hinman's Irvine tournament. Oh, okay. And so Marina won it one year. Los Alamitos won it in 1997. That's with Jackie Frank and Kristen Guerin, Shelly Linza, that crew. The next year it became a sanctioned sport and... It was in the wintertime, and 1998, it became a sanctions sport, and that was the Marina team that we played. Long Beach Wilson was 27-0 and in the CIF finals, Division One finals, and we upset them. They had beaten us twice earlier that year. So I think that's, a, that's something that a lot of people would never know about you, and that is that, I mean, you were sort of on the forefront of girls' water polo becoming sort of mainstream in high school water polo. If I could just go back for one second, because I think it's a really important point. You know, you said, you said a couple times, hey, you know, I, I wasn't really a star. I wasn't an All-American. How do you apply that mentality of having to sit on the bench to coaching today? There has to be some sort of connection that you have with guys who aren't getting the opportunity that they maybe think they should or maybe they're not ready for. How do you connect with players and parents of kids that aren't playing very much? That's, that's actually a good question. Uh, no one's asked me that before. When I played for Coach Hamdorf, I think it was in one of the first meetings, the only way I got on that team was my high school assistant coach was an All-American at Golden West. His name is Carlos Fernandez. And he vouched for me. I had four superlatives at that Golden West team. I was the smallest, weakest, slowest, shortest guy on the roster. And the only way I got to play with those dudes was because my coach vouched for me. And Hamdorf said, you know, if you slow up our practice, I I can't have you here. But based on what your coach has said, I have a ton of respect for his opinion. As long as you can find a way to contribute... And I remember looking around the room at our first meeting and I recognized every one of these guys. I mean, it was the all Orange County team. And so I knew I was, I I wanted to win. I wanted to be on a team that won. I went to Ocean View High School and we we didn't ever win any championships. And so I realized if I could be a role player, find a way to contribute to the team. And it wasn't going to be by scoring the game winning goal or getting minutes. I never played a second in either one of the two state championship games. Never played a second. And so at the end of the day, I wanted to be able to say when we won, I contributed somehow, however that was. And one of the things I remember when I played on the team was I'm, if you ask my teammates today, I didn't realize that at the time, but it kind of inspired some of them that I was not someone who was receiving minutes in games but I would go out there and I'd work as hard as I could. And whatever little role I had, I would do it. And my role pretty much became, even as uh, my second year there, someone who would go in on the prep team for a couple minutes at a time and then sub out. 
you know, I'd go a few counterattacks, one goal, I'd sub out. I'd play really physical. I would push or challenge the, the top players. And then I sat out. But I remember my first year there, I actually, before big games, would get in the water and set two meters and kick the ball out to the, to the players. They would actually request it. Hey, Ham, can Carlson set two meters before the game? Why? Well, he sets us up with good passes. You know, because I took a lot of pride in that. These guys are the ones that are going to win the game for us. And so what I can do is I can hop in the water. They can throw an entry pass to me. I don't even set two meters and I can kick it out right where I know where they want it and they can catch and shoot. That was our shooting drill. And so I felt that that was a way that I can contribute. And another thing, too, is, you know, as a coach, I didn't realize this at the time, but sitting on the bench next to the coach or sitting out on some of the drills next to the coach, you're actually getting an opportunity to be able to see the game from the coaching perspective, as opposed to when you're playing in the game, you don't, you, you can see from the player's perspective, but from a coach, you can see it a lot more analytically from, 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 yeah, from you almost see things developing at, before they, before they're there. I mean, that's, you have to have, you have to have conversations with players when they're like, coach, I want to get more minutes or, you know, you're bringing a kid along that you know was not going to get minutes, but you, I mean, are you giving him a role or do you give, or do you make him part of the team because you basically say, I could see this guy's got something with this group of guys or this group of girls. I need them on my bench. I need them here. They're, they bring a good vibe or, you know, people are inspired by that. Do you, do you see that? Yes. I would, I would say if I, if I go back a little bit, what, what makes me see that is, what was taught at Golden West. If, if you're willing to work your tail off and you're, you're going to be unselfish and a great teammate and you can find a way to contribute, he'll, he'll, put, you, he'll put you on the team. Yeah. How, can, how can you contribute? And so there, I kind of had to fi- find my own role. How am I going to contribute? Um, as little as you know, encouraging guys as they come in. You know, the coach doesn't have time to... to in the middle of a big game to give you a ton of instruction, but he pulls you out and says like, this is a mistake you made, you know, um, you need to fix that. And so something as small as me going, Hey man, like you've got this, like get back in there and, you know, score us a goal. Like you've got this, you've got this something as little as just boosting the morale of a player on the team. Um, who, who, who just got subbed out. That's getting ready to sub in or getting them fired up. So, and you see that a lot in other sports. I mean, you see that, especially like NC2A basketball, you know, we just finished the tournament last night. You see the guys on the bench who are super pumped, who may not get the opportunity, but they want to be part of it. And, you know, they eventually will get their opportunity. They have to be ready for that. But I mean, it's been over 20 years. You've had to have seen the evolution of water polo from where it started to, to where it is now. Do you have any negative or positive thoughts about that? I like the fact that it's growing. For the most part, when I was playing water polo, I would say that 99% of America didn't even know, wouldn't even know that that's a sport. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of opportunity. And so now, you know, you've got water polo in Texas and you have water polo all over the United States. And so as a water polo coach, I like the idea that more and more people are aware of this sport because it is such a great sport. I'll move on into a next sort of realm. And this is sort of just a a quick question that we, we brought up earlier. And that is where do you place the most importance when it comes to club versus high school 
you have so many things. And we talked about the summertime, which has just become chaotic. If you're doing both, you know, if you're, you're balancing athletes, uh, you've had to do it just this last year, I'm sure. What would you rather win CIF or junior Olympics? So something that this is something really that I, that I've asked my athletes and I actually, I don't think ever use the term that I've won CIF because I believe with all my heart, the players win. So I would always say my, you know, my 2004 team or 2008 team or whatever, 2012 team, you know, they won this, this championship. I would say that is a question that I've asked players after they've graduated, you know, that have won junior worlds that have won CIF that have won junior Olympics at the 18 U level or 16 U level. And I would say, and it's, it's several athletes that have asked in club and in high school. And the consensus I get from the athletes is the best feeling or the best championship to win is a CIF championship, especially division one. I would say I can, I can understand because of the relationship you build and how much time you're spending with that, with that team. So with high school, you know, you go to school with these uh, athletes and they become your friends and you wake up in the morning, you go to class with them and you spend so much more time with them. You're practicing every single day. There's a lot more, I would say, emotionally invested in the majority of high school teams, at least the high school teams that compete at a very high level. There's a lot of time and emotion invested into that. And so another thing that was pointed out by players is, you know, when even NC2A, I go, you know, what's winning an NC2A tournament. You won CIF here. You won a national championship. You won junior worlds. You won what? Well, and the athletes say, you know, high school's just so much different because of, you know, the ASB and, and, and you have the crowd that comes out and your friends from school that don't play water polo and don't know what water polo is. They all come to support you and the admin. And it's just the atmosphere of winning a CIF championship is, you know, more exciting according to the, the players. I actually asked after at SoCal, after, after uh, twice after championships in 2009, 2010, I actually asked the athletes that day, what was the better feeling? Division one championship what was more exciting winning CIF or, or, or winning every single guy had the same response, like no offense, but this is awesome, but nothing can compare to winning that CIF championship. And I go, no offense taken. There's that is something what about, said. there's something about school pride. There's something about being part of an organization that you see yourself as part of that organization and not like the figurehead of that organization. Like, you know, you're coaching 18 under SoCal, you know, you're one of the guys up, Top. And yes, you're part of this larger organization, but I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. So if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. But you were independent. You know, you did your own sort of thing. You ran practices the way you wanted to run them. You kind of held meetings and did things the way you wanted that to be done when you were coaching for SoCal. When you're here at, at Los Al or when I'm at Orange Lutheran or Northwood, we have staff meetings. We get to know these other people who are doing the same thing you know, and are being successful or not being successful. We, we see these ups and downs of the entire school. When another sport wins, you're stoked for them. You yeah. know, you're going to the championship game exactly. for girls volleyball or whatever it might be. It's just, you know, it's just not quite the same when you're doing that for club. I just, I love it. And I've won, you know, we've won gold medals or even medals, uh, which is a big deal. It's a huge deal. 
but uh, nothing quite like being part of a CIF championship team. That's for, that's for sure. And so, you know, to that, I'm going to put you on the spot here. How many CIF championship championships does Los Alamitos have? Cause you say, uh, since I've been here, we have won, uh, w- uh, one division CIF championship and two masters CIF Southern section masters CIF championships. The first one, the team that won the first CIF championship that I coached was in 1998. It was the girls at Marina it was division one. Okay. So, so f- two division teams that I've coached and two masters. One of the games that I remember as a fan was the Los Alamitos Villa Park game at Belmont. It's one of the last games at Belmont. I think 06 was the actual last championship game at Belmont. That was when Northwood lost in the final to El Toro. What year was that? 2004. Okay, so 2004. And I remember sitting behind the bench watching you guys coach and I, you know, you'll have to name off the, the team, the, the team players on that team. So who were, who were the top players on that team for Los Al? So, I mean, I know you don't want to like call any or forget the, the, anybody, the, the, but the two top players on our team were Scott Davidson, okay. who was a senior UCLA, and Kevin Guerin in UCLA for Scott Davidson. Scott Davidson went to UCLA, eventually was the Mount Pacific player of the year, senior year. And Kevin Guerin, Kevin Guerin had a catastrophic season ending injury in our game non-league game versus Long Beach Wilson that went into two overtimes in October and so Kevin was an, unable to participate in a single league game and a single CIF game and so I would say the next player we had two players that went on to play uh, in division one was Clayton Snyder he was our two meter man you know our goalie was from the baseball team you know, he didn't go, he didn't play in, in, in college. Uh, Stephen Brooke was our next best player and he didn't play in college. Uh, Jeff Tism was a sophomore on that team. He didn't play in college. Uh, Tim Brady was a starter on that team. He didn't play in college. Dan Levin and Mike Milosevic uh, played a ton of minutes on that team. And they both went on to play at Cuesta and OCC. And Calvin Kagan was a starting sprinter on that team. And so you have this team of group of kids that, I mean, I think most people who are listening to this have heard of Clayton Snyder, um, two meter guy, Pepperdine, you know, was, is an actor, Mm -hmm. um, doing other things besides water polo. Um, so, and then Scott Davidson, if you were in the world of water polo, you've heard of he eventually, both of those guys eventually competed on the senior national team. Yeah, and so I remember Scott Davidson. Um, I remember he was he was a baller. I mean, he was definitely, a, a, both of them were great players. Um, and flip to the other side, Villa Park, you have a couple of names that are a little bit more recognized maybe. Uh, Shea Buckner was one of them, probably one of the most dominant high school players. Ever. Ever. I mean, yeah, I, they destroyed us in 2004. I think it was like 18 to one at their pool. You had um, Andy, Andy Stevens, Andy Stevens in, the in the goal. And he was a national team player at some point, went to LMU and LMU had the most amazing run at the NC2A um, when he was their, their goalkeeper. Uh, who are a couple of He was other? actually the second string goalie uh, summer of 2016. Yes. Yes. I remember. On that. our senior national yeah, team I remember. at one point. And uh, played professionally in Hungary mm-hmm. uh, for several years. Uh, he actually helped me at Concordia. 
when I was at. So I got to know him fairly well. Very good goalie. Yeah, very good. And then who else was on that team? I know Samuels was on that team. The older Samuels was a starter on the team, but I forget his first name, but Milovic. It's a two-meter defender. And my mind's going blank on some of them, but Alex Churnside, I know, was on the national youth team as a two-meter defender, two-meter man. And, you know... Albert Samuels was on that team, yeah. And Josh hadn't come in yet, right? So I I remember they were like 30... Yeah. Two and zero. Okay, so I, I knew you would know that. They were thirty two and zero. Thirty two and zero, heading to the championship game. No one had even come close. You guys beat them, and I remember. And I told you this story uh, a couple months ago when we were on the deck during the um, regional championships. I remember you t- winning the game, you turning around to your team, and everybody was in. They were so shocked that you had to almost tell them to push you in the water. Because they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what was going on. Um, what did you tell your team heading into that game? What was, the, what was the thing that you told them that you thought, you know, was the thing that really stuck with them? What would they repeat? I would guess that if you were to ask them, you know, what, we, we were very realistic. You know, at Los Alamitos, and it's been like this forever, at Los Alamitos, we are not ever going to be on the same exact playing field as the top tier teams, but we do get enough talent to come in to compete with those top tier teams, you know? So, you know, instead of looking at a season, we, we always, our goal is to win a CIF championship as unrealistic as that sounds every year to people on the outside, our goal here at Los Alamitos every single year is number one to win a CIF championship. And number two is to win league. And so how are we going to even compete with a team like Villa Park, who's in our division? And so what we really concentrate on is the things that we have control over. We don't have control over a lot of things that Shea Buckner can do or Andy Stevens can do or Alex Chernside or Milovic or any of those guys. What we have control over is what we can do. And at the end of the day, we've always felt like win or lose a game, we walk away and we're okay with it because we've done everything within our ability. That's why I've had coaches ask after that game, because it's happened in the past where we have won a very tight game, is that my teams generally don't feel the pressure to go in to win. They feel pressure to go out and play and be unselfish, play the best you possibly can play and be unselfish. And so going into that game, I remember we felt all week, two weeks we were planning, if we get to the CI finals, is if you look at the scores in the paper, in the semifinal game, they were up 8-0 after the 8-0 or 8-1. And I say, look at these top tier Division I teams that Villa Park crushes. They generally jump out to a strong first period lead. It's six, seven, or eight goals they generally scored in the first period. And then it kind of, against the top teams, it kind of trails off. And then, you know, the teams that are not in the top 10, it just keeps getting worse. But they generally scored about seven or eight goals in the first period against top teams. And so, you know, we don't need to get a lead after the first, but I can tell you that something that can possibly be in their heads of things aren't going right is getting, is if we can get stops. If we can get stops and we don't get blown out in the first period, yeah, we live to go into the second period. And if we don't get blown out in the second period, we're just fighting with them. I mean, it's our last game. Uh, And then another thing too is we kind of had... I said I felt we had an advantage. We had been in the CI finals before. This was Villa Park's first time under 
their coach that they had actually been in the CI finals at Belmont. And so one thing that I told our team is I said, I, th- I honestly think we have an advantage over these guys. We've played in this before. We know the atmosphere. It's totally different than anything else. And the thing that you need to remember, if you, you know, when playing in a championship game at Belmont, you can't hear the coach. Yeah. It's, and so I said, you know, if you watch these games, there's a lot of communication going on with that coach and their players when they're on offense and they're not going to be able to hear them. And you already know when we get in that finals game, we have a game plan. This is what we need to do. And if I need to say something, we had a lane line extension and there was that metal, you know, gate and we would bang on that. I had several people ask me after that game, you know, what? what was that all about? You know, they would, we would ding, 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 ding. They would look up and we would do everything with, with hand motions, you know? And so that was another thing that we went into the game feeling like we actually had an advantage as absurd as that sounds. My players walked into that game. I believe expecting to be in the game going in the fourth period with an opportunity to win and believing that we could win and that we actually had an advantage you can't underestimate the size of that advantage and, and being on the losing end and on the winning end of that game. The last one being at Belmont Plaza, I could tell you right now that Don Stahl at El Toro, who I respect a term, tremendous amount, amazing coach, he had the advantage. No one was going to beat Don Stahl at Belmont Plaza. He had signs. He knew exactly what he was going to do. I don't do. think anybody ever had before. I think his teams had been undefeated yes. in the CIF championship yes. games. And he, he, you know, so he had it down. And I remember Don Cholodenko actually told me that old coach from Capo Valley. He said, you're not going to be Don Stahl in, the, in Belmont. But there is a different atmosphere about that game that is unlike any other game. You feel the nerves. You feel the tension. You feel the energy from the crowd. And if you've never been there before... That's a tough game to win for sure. One thing I just wanted to get out there was with very little time on the clock, uh, Shea Buckner is coming down the right side of the pool. If I remember correctly, he's coming down the right side of the pool. You are towards, you are away from the ocean uh, at that point. I mean, this is how much this is stuck in my head. I mean, I remember that game clearly. And I remember he pulls up and I mean, he could have thrown the ball through the net. I mean, the guy was a monster. He still is. Uh, He's an actor, by the way. He's actually doing really well. Doing some. I did not know that. Yeah, he's doing some. Big I knew time. that he was a monster. I didn't know that he was. Yeah, an actor. no, he's he's doing some big time, some big time things. And he pulls up at about four meters, five meters, gets up super big, and then he throws the lob, and the lob hits the bar, and I think it goes. I want to say it bars almost down. I don't think it hit the top of the bar and went up. Was am I? We, I could be yeah, wrong. Have, on you're that. right. We have this on. We we have it on video. It's on. Uh, it's on. It's on a video, a motivational video that we, we watch. There's okay. a highlight reel that someone put together for us back in 2004. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, so, and that was the game, right? That was that was their last chance to tie it up because you guys yeah. were pretty. I so, felt like you were leading most of the game. So we jumped out six to two on them. In the second period, we were up six to two at one point, and the inevitable happens. Once they scored that first goal, their confidence came back, and they went on a run. And we had scored one more goal, so going into the fourth period, it was tied seven seven, and the momentum had swung in their favor. They were extremely confident. You're holding on for dear life. Yeah, and I just remember bringing the guys in, and they did most of the talking. So right under the bleachers, and Kevin Guerin did most of the talking. He was in full clothes. And he got up on a chair and, you know, I said, when did you guys, I just asked, when did you guys start this journey? You know, they're like, it was the, 
the we lost last year in the CIA finals and we started like two days later in the morning. Like we have outworked everybody. There's nobody that's put more in. We're not losing this game. They said that. I just sat back and watched. We're unable to score in the half court. They're, they're just simply better than us. And so the only way we're going to be able to score is on a counterattack. That's the only way. Once we get in the half court, they're just locking us down. And so I played a lot of attackers and kept subbing in the, in, in the fourth period. And our defense was to when they got in the half court, I thought our guys did a really good job of putting pressure on the shooter and having somebody else getting ready to crash into two meters. If the ball hit anybody on the perimeter, they didn't have a weak link on the team. Everybody can score from anywhere. So when our goal was anytime somebody had the ball, there needed to be pressure on that person. We also could not let the ball go into two meters because we couldn't guard any of their three best players. And so ball goes into two meters. There needs to be a stair step and a crash into two meters. And so as you got into the fourth period and we were, they were able to get stops we're able to get stops. We were able to get a counterattack goal from Scott Davidson. It was one counterattack goal. Shoot, I forget how much time was left, like three or four minutes. And so as Villa Park came down to offense, I felt they were really trying too hard to score. They started to really push the issue. And so on that counterattack goal, Shea Buckner's coming down. He's, he's on a fast break and he pulls up. And I actually thought it was a good shot. He tried to pull the goalie strong side. He had like a small hesitation and he went for a cross cage lob and he just happened to miss it. It hit the bar and, and went down. And I actually felt like either one would be a good shot. He, I felt he picked the ball up maybe a little earlier than he needed to and strong, pulled strong side, shot cross cage, hit the bar and came down. But they had two other opportunities after that where they called a timeout. They had the five yard, seven yard foul shot at the time. And at that time, it, you could block with two hands and it was just a turnover. And so we had, inst- I had instructed the guys, the ball's going to go to Buckner. He's going to shoot it, whether we foul him or not. And everybody that's in front, get two hands up and don't let it get to the, the then it's going to be their ball back, but he's going to score. score. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was, it was at, it was like with about a second line. They got two because we goalie blocked one of them, went out. They got the ball out of bounds two he got two shots from up top and the last shot was with about a second left where our players blocked it with two with they put two hands up they blocked it and then buzzer went off crazy and so you win that CAF championship and I mean for those of us who remember I think you were always considered you know a good coach but that sort of put you on a different on a different level I think a lot of the press you know I mean like OC varsity that started coming out at that time started going into like you don't want to play against Los Al because they're they're going to have a game plan for you and you you became that that became sort of something that followed you a little bit you became like a, a guru and this is just from an outsider's perspective obviously you know I'm sure you don't see that as much we we came into games thinking okay like he's going to have some weird crazy funky offense or defense that he's going to run against us and I, I remember you went through sort of a stretch where you had some really interesting offensive sets really based around what looked like basketball plays and you ran that for like 3 or 4 years I think because you had specific types of players. Is that correct? Yeah. So something that I, I'm a huge sports fan. And so something that I've just always believed if, I, if I'm coaching water polo is if you don't have the personnel, like my two meter man cannot get set against your two meter defender. We're not going to just concede that we're going to lose. There has to be something that we can do, like take our strengths and work on our strengths or work on your weaknesses. And so what my goal was 
was to get the ball in the hands of our top players. You know, you need one or two. I always felt like you need one or two players that can play with the top teams. A team that's willing to play roles, like have a smaller role and, and play good defense. And so there were teams where we didn't have a standout two-meter man, but our best player was a small attacker. And so what can we do to highlight or showcase this person or somebody like a Scott Davidson had a really good outside shot, you know, or I remember Jeff Tism, you know, he was really good at driving. He could beat anybody off of a drive. And so instead of going into a game, conceding a loss or just complaining and saying, oh, I don't have the personnel or we don't have the talent to compete. It's like, I always believe that you have talent. And I've, oh, I always tell my players that, you know, we, we, we have just as much talent in this room as they do. It might be a different talent, big, strong, fast, is is a talent being unselfish is it is 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 a talent i think it's extremely important a hard work ethic uh being willing to work uh for your teammate unselfishly that that that's a talent you know that's an interesting perspective that's an interesting way to look at it because i think a lot of coaches look at their teams and go i don't have as much talent this year as i did last year as opposed to what you're saying athleticism i think people think it's synonymous athleticism and talent you know, and then build, building on building off of that is a confidence level going into the games. I always have asked my athletes to their self esteem should be built on you know what 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 are, what are you good at you know. So you we go and we play against someone like Shea Buckner. You know he's bigger, stronger, faster than you, but I mean you can play the piano better than him. Done. You know you get straight A's. You've got a four GPA. You are smart. You should be confident. And so you're just trying to build up because on that team, there had to have been somebody, a role player that made an important play that changed the game, which is usually the case. I mean, last night, you know, if you're if you're listening to this, we're recording this on April 3rd. The six man from Villanova comes off the bench and scores 32 points last night. There, there had to have been somebody on that team that made a play that was a big difference. I would say most people from the year. 2004, didn't even know this name on our team. His name was Tim Brady. Scott Davidson, my goalie, Casey Simon, and Tim Brady are the only three players that played the entire game. Tim Brady was our sixth best player in the water, no matter how many subs I put in. And Tim Brady started by playing Frost off here for two years. His junior year, he came, he moved up to the varsity JV ranks and he played on the JV team and going into his senior year, he actually grew a little bit. But the thing I remember about Tim Brady was he was a soldier, man. He was unselfish. He would play physical. He played defense and he didn't mess up on offense. And so I remember he was a, at the beginning of the year, he was a JV starter moved to somebody that got a couple minutes. And as we go into the playoffs, you know, I don't think you need, six ringers. I mean, I, even at, at, at SoCal, I ran a subbing rotation where there's only one ball to go around. Right. And if you got six ringers that all need to have the, you know, they want to make the game winning shot, you know, why not have a couple role players out there and then rotate maybe four ringers at a time. Right. I just noticed that works out pretty well. So Tim Brady fulfilled a role as a role player. He played great defense. He could get up and down the pool. He was unselfish and he didn't mess up on offense and so by allowing him to play, I was able to run more of a subbing rotation. And so I don't think there was a specific time in the game where Tim Brady made the game-winning play. But when I asked people, there were three people that played the entire game. Who are they? Well, your goalie, 
Scott and nobody no, guesses no. Tim Brady. Yeah. And I mean, he didn't play in college, by the way, he went to UCLA. He's a fireman right now, but he didn't go off to play college. So I would assume that that's the Dave Carlson in the story. I mean, maybe, but I, 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 I didn't play in either one of our state championships. Let me swing it back over to big time players. These, these players that you built your programs around. I mean, one Olympian or one national team player is an amazing accomplishment. Um, if you have multiple, then that's just, you know, that's an absolutely amazing senior national team players. Yeah. I mean, Olympic games is the, the absolute ultimate. Cause Drew Arzinski actually played in the world championships with, 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 with the U S. Okay. So she was not a quote unquote Olympian. She wasn't on that team, but she was a national she, team player. Yeah. She was on the senior national team and the two meter man when they won worlds in Beijing in 2005. Okay. And so what did you see in those players that was just different? Was there like a combination of just really, really hard work, athleticism, or was there something, did they, did you have some sort of a relationship with them that was different than maybe some other players? Did you trust them more to, to give you ideas or did you take suggestions from them? So I, I would say that I've had some other like pretty high profile players that uh, come through here that have been great high school and then really good or great collegiate players. And each one of them was, was different for starters. If you're going to be in the, in the Olympics, you, you have God given ability. You're, you're an athlete. Yeah. And so I think world class athlete, world class athlete. I would say that there's been other athletes that might be as good as them that have possibly gone through this program or other programs that don't necessarily have that fire. So something that I look at with a Scott Davidson, someone like that, Joe Ferretti was a, is another person that comes to mind is like a fire in them that they, they want it really bad. And I would say the one guy out of all of the high profile players that I've had an opportunity to coach that kind of got that fire late was Tim Hutton. Tim Hutton really generated that fire midway through his senior year and that carried to UCI where it grew even more. So Tim Hutton, there's always a lot of God-given ability that you just look at and go, man, you could be so good. But there was a fire that developed in him his senior year. He, going into his senior year, I don't know that he th knew he was going to play in college, but he got this fire in him his senior year. And man, that thing took off. Catino award winner. Olympian. Do you see that developing? You saw that develop his senior year. Like, was there a moment that you could remember? I mean, I know that's kind of tough to look back on, but was there something, did you get on him about something and he kind of, were you the bad guy and, and he just wanted to show you up or, or what, do you remember what it was? Yeah, I remember distinctly. We joke around about this. His senior year, there was a lot of seniors in his class who you know, there was, there was the association role back then. And so they trained with somebody else, you know, and they went, they would go like, we're all going to be as a team, go to club. And there was a number of seniors that decided not to. And so Tim was the only senior that I put on varsity and I played a bunch of freshmen and sophomores and juniors. That's when Scott was a sophomore. Wow. And so he was the only senior. And so some of the seniors quit and some of them decided like, Hey, we're going to ride this. We're, we're going to, we're going to play. We're sorry, but we, we, we want to be a part of this. And they would be on the prep team and they would play JV. We went undefeated as JV that year. And, uh, you know, I know with Tim, it's hard to relate. All his best friends are playing 
JV and he's got, he called them kids. You know, he's playing with a bunch of kids. And so there was a little bit of a disconnect. And so he had missed a couple of days during our double days. So I just said, you know, you're, you're going to have to sit out like the first five games. And then he, he, he rolled out a little bit late. We started our swim set. And I honestly feel that the best players and the best athletes want to be held accountable. And I think that sometimes coaches shy away from that because they don't want to be the bad guy or they shy away from it because they want to, they want to be popular. They want to be liked. So they want to be friends with these people. But my father used to say that, you know, I'm your, your father, you know, when you're, when you're a parent, you got to choose. You, you want to be the kid's friend or you're, you want to be the parent. And I felt like that challenges as a coach, are you their coach or are you their friends? And as a coach, my job is to hold everybody accountable, including the top players. And so I had a conversation with them at the base right then. The kid all jumped in and they started their warm up. And I understand, you know, he's the only senior that's yeah. playing. He's the best player by far on the team. And so I had just said, you know, I get it. You know, I totally understand that you're not really into this, but you are by far our best player. And I don't, these kids all look up to you. And I don't, I don't want them going into the league championship game or CIF championship game if we make it that far to be like where's Tim so I said that um you know I just mentioned that I think this isn't going to work out and he said no I want to be here and I says well you're gonna have to do something to show me that you're actually committed because I, I and he says well, you know what what is that on the spot I just went you're gonna swim 100 100s right now on the 130 and I'll give you five minutes to think about it if you would like to continue with our program that would show me a commitment and you would also have to sit out, I think it was the first six games of the season, which is like a big part of your senior year. So, I mean, you that would really have to be a big choice that you, 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 know, you make. But that would show me that you are committed to these guys right here. And you would have five minutes to think about that. Uh, he obviously was not thrilled to hear that and stormed off into the locker room. And I was just waiting for the five minutes to come up to explain to the guys that our best player in our entire program is not going to be with us anymore. And he walked out with about four minutes, 30 seconds, had his goggles and he goes, I, I thought about it. I want to be here. And he said, is there any way we can negotiate? I could do some on the 120 and maybe some on the 115. I said, no, the whole point of it, it's mentally grueling. Like it's on the 130. When you're done with 50, it's like, hey, you're only halfway done. And he goes, I'll do it. I go, we're, we're going right here at the top. I'm telling you, he was a great team captain and a great leader after that swim set. Like he, he, something clicked, I think, where he had to choose. And, you know, I'm very thankful that he made that choice. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and I could see, you know, obviously this is a podcast. I could, I could see you get emotional about this, some of these stories, um, as I do as well, you know, when I talk about my teams. And do you think that was as much of a learning moment for you as it was for him? I had already set the precedent for that in the past and I got it from Hamdorf. There needs to be an accountability. And if there's an accountability, we have an opportunity to reach our full potential. But as soon as there's an accountability for everybody except for this guy or these three or these four, the, where, where does it end? Like, is it the fourth best player? Is it the fifth best player? Like, what do you have to do and not have to do? And I felt like I learned at Golden West that the best players, when push comes to shove, they want to be held accountable. And if they don't, they don't want to be there bad enough. And so, you know, just at that moment with Tim, you know, I mean, the last thing you want to do is do an ultimatum. He's a, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. It was just, he wasn't all in, which is arguably all his best friends are playing yeah. JV. Yeah, yeah. And so you were the enemy. 
at that point. You were the bad guy because you had ruined his senior year, quote unquote, by going like, dude, my friends aren't even here with me. You're making me do this on my own. You know, I like that line of really good players want to be held accountable, whether they know it or they don't. And I've been fortunate enough to coach some really, really talented players. And it's really hard sometimes. It's really, really hard in an environment that we're in right now of, of high school athletics where people are transferring and moving and going all over the place to really, really hold players, you know, and, and be strict with that. They buy in, in my experience, they buy in. The best players have bought into that. And I had a great relationship with Tim that whole year after that. Like he got it. And, you know, we, before games, you know, he would talk. But I, one thing that would be common when we have our team meeting, Tim would put his arm around me. And I'd say, Tim, anything you want to say? And then he'd, he'd say it. We had a great relationship after that. To, to, all the way to, to this day. And um, Do you think he would remember the story the same? Oh, yeah, because we, we, we joke around. Was there something, um, was there something with, uh, Rachel that was similar? How was it coaching her? Rachel, again, uh, one of the things with Rachel that I felt early was I kind of felt on an island to where the only, I, I felt, it might not have been true. I felt like I was the only coach really giving her corrective feedback. 99% of the things she did were awesome. She had a great work ethic, but if there's something that I had to correct, you know, um, so I have to tell you, she was not a big fan of me, her freshman and sophomore year. And then I think midway through junior year and going into senior year, when she started to see that I'm doing this because I care about you, like a parent with their kid, it's not doing it because, you know, I'm, I'm mad at you. Um, and so I know with, with Rachel, with holding her accountable, you know, it was consistent where at first she felt like I was picking on her and it took more than two years because everywhere she went, you know, she's the baller. Yeah. And so I, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but just to give a little context, the national team had started really ramping up with the younger players at this point when Rachel was in high school and she was on the radar. Right? Absolutely. So she was on the radar in that first youth movement of like, we identify players early on, we're going to bring them through this national team system. And so you had to balance that. That was just brand new during that time, right? Yeah. But as soon as Rachel started to see that I'm doing this because I care about you and that I'm willing to hold you accountable, even if you get mad at me, because that's how much I care about you. We had a great great relationship. Like today, like I get along great with Rachel today, as long as the top players buy in and they, they show that they buy in, they believe in the accountability and they take accountability when they make a mistake or they don't come back on defense and you have to sit them out. Um, you know, that's one of my common lines I would have is, do you think I'm completely out of line expecting you as the team captain and the best player in on the national junior team to counter back on defense and play defense as hard as you play offense. No, I guess not. Then I'm going to need to sit you for a little bit. And so. And is this something that you do in front of, does everybody else see it or is it um, private or is it just depend on the situation? I guess it depends on the situation. Um, Cause I don't see you it's getting general, really upset. 
on the sidelines? I generally, when I get upset, I want the player to hear, not all the parents in the stands. It's really none of their business. I'm going to, for the sake of time, I'm going to, I wanted to ask a couple of other questions really quick. Um, if there was a, and this is a difficult question, so I don't want to, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but is there a favorite, is there a favorite team that, or is not, I wouldn't say favorite, that that's the wrong way to say it, but is there a team that you look back on and say they did everything right? It may not be a championship team, but they did everything right. This might not be what you were looking for, but that would be 90% of the teams at the end of the season. I mean, w- no, that, I, can t- I, can tell you, I can tell you a couple examples. That, that uh, makes re- sense, re- though. The, the 2012-13 girls team here at Los Al, that team overachieved as much as any team that has rings. And... We had lost. We were completely outmatched. We lost to, to Corona Del Mar in the quarterfinal game. They ended up winning CIF Division One. We lost them, I think, 9-7, and we were in the game the whole time. And uh, we had lost to Newport, who Corona Del Mar beats in the CIF finals. We lost to them in a close league championship game, and there are no rings. There's not even a Sunset League championship for that 2012-2013 team. But that team achieved and, 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 and did just as much right as any team that's ever been here that's won any championship. And so, I mean, there, there's a lot of teams like that to where, you know, you don't get a ring at the end of the season. You don't even get a league championship because Newport's in our league. But, I mean, you, you overachieved for our ability as well as anybody in all of high school. And so, you know, I think that's something that yeah. No, I, I, I would probably say something similar. Um, if you could, uh, if you could change something in the world of water polo, what would that be? Whether it's USA water polo, high school water polo or international water polo. Is there anything that, that bothers you today? Not, not really. Not nothing I can think of. You know, I generally spend my time concerning my, or I spend my time focusing in on stuff that I have control over. So whatever happens or whatever the rules are, uh, I am on the, I have the rules and this is my team. And then we're, we're just going to go out and do what we have control over. So I don't really think too much about that. I, I notice, and I, we're friends on Facebook. So I see photos, a lot of your sporting events that you go to. And um, I, I notice that you go and take teams uh, and, and observe college practices. You may do it solo as well. You go and observe some uh, college practices and games. What schools have you observed and, and what do you take away from those practices? Okay, so starting in, I think it was 2009 when I got the SoCal job, 1800 job, what I wanted to do was do the best job I can in that short period of time to help prep these junior national team players for college, like to contribute. So uh, it started off with me asking one or two coaches, and then it kind of parlayed into several coaches allowing me to come into the practice with the understanding. I'm not going to talk about what goes on necessarily in their practice and that they trust that I'm going to observe, make adjustments, or try to develop the players and not talk about what I'm watching. 
so on the men's side, I've gotten an opportunity to observe a UCI practice, Long Beach State, UC Davis, and, since Layson's been up there. Uh, but most of the practices that I observed with the men were uh, Everest lets me go to his Cal practice. I spent double days up there, uh, Adam Krikorian at UCLA and Jovan at USC. On the women's side, I've observed a Santa Barbara practice, but um, most of the uh, I've observed a Cal practice, Cal practices. Uh, but the two schools I spend the most time with are with Yovan from SC and uh, John Tanner at Stanford. And so, getting an opportunity to go in and actually watch their practice, see how the coaches interact with the players, go into the weight room, uh, be able to see video. They're they're going over video, you know being able to look in that atmosphere and then try to not necessarily simulate it, but be able to go back to the guys I coach or the girls I coach here at the high school and be able to try and give them a little bit of an advantage when they get to that school that they're going to. And I can make it more personal with the player. You know, you're planning on going to this school, this coach's expectations are this, this, and this, and that you know this, this, and this as a freshman as you go in and you can see, you know, which, which players you look at are, are, are maybe struggling and which players are thriving. Why are these players thriving and why are these players maybe not being as successful as the ones that are getting the most minutes? And you kind of make observations. And Everest and Adam and um, Jovan have been awesome at it letting me stand right next to them as they're coaching and, and, and watch and maybe ask them a question, you know, like why, you know, what, hey, I have, a, I have a question on this. And then Tanner's been great and Jovan at SC and Tanner's been really great at, you know, I, I can stand right next to him or any of his coaching staff in the middle of them practicing and ask questions like, hey, you notice, I, I noticed that this, this, this skill that you're working on, you know, how vital is that? Which, you know, you this is very important for all the players to be able to do this. Well, I've told all these coaches, you know, I'm, I'm kind of taking some of what I'm grabbing from you and I would like to implement this in my high school or my club practice would you have a problem with it? Absolutely not. You know, absolutely not. They're, they'd be more prepared as they come in. It would be interesting if, you know, more coaches did this, especially, you know, the higher level, what I would call higher level coaches in terms of um, national team and things like that. There's a lot to be learned from observing and watching. And I mean, I, like I told you before, that's part of the reason why I'm doing this is to learn is to and, and for other people to learn. One thing that goes kind of along with that that I can share that I've learned from these collegiate practices is that a lot of what happens at these big Division I schools is, is they're running a different style than our Olympic team does. And so that's something that I've chosen to do more at the club level and here at the high school level is really concentrate more on having them where they can possibly be more successful at their college team than maybe the Olympic team. And if you're planning on making the Olympics anyways, you would, you would be an ODP. And so one of the biggest differences I noticed between the collegiate game and our international game is the top tier programs, at least in the NC2A are able to try to hold a press a little bit longer before they go back into a zone. And there's a lot more, driving in the men's and women's NC2As than you would ever see at, at the international level. And so a simple skill like defense against the drive, you know, defense against a ball side drive, defense against a backdoor drive is something that I look at the way that they teach it 
And we emulate that here at our high school. And I would do that over at uh, SoCal also and be able to kind of go, you know, you might be on the Olympic or the, the senior team or the junior team or the youth team. And you don't necessarily have to worry about a lot of these drives when you're playing internationally, but you get to NC2As, there's a lot more driving. I would say if I would be able to be the person that connects these division one coaches to any athlete that's listening to this podcast, that's a senior or, you know, looking to play at a college is when you get to college, it's, it's, it's not about you. It's about the team and the program and what can you do to help the team? Is it play 50% of the game? Is it play 10% of the game? And if these athletes going on to the university can go in with the mindset of, it's not all about me. It's how can I help out your program coach? They will be a lot more successful early in their collegiate career. Okay. Last question. What advice would you give to yourself uh, young Dave Carlson about coaching and navigating through like the education slash coaching world. If you could give yourself some advice. If I could go back in time, I would say have a core system of what you believe in and don't ever deviate from what you believe is right and the, and, and, and the way to run your program very cool. Uh, Dave, thanks a lot for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your knowledge to um, everyone who's listening, coaches, players, parents. I think it's just going to be an amazing uh, episode for people to listen to. So thanks. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah.